you have to have perspective. You have to get up every single day, go to work, and you have to think about that person you're writing this software for. Because if our mission is really, we're going to develop a better way to relate to machines and robots, then we really better do it. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Not only is he disrupting the subsea industry, he's doing it from a landlocked state. Today we sit down with Ben Kinneman, President and CEO of Green Sea Systems, the leader in the world of underwater robotics software and equipment. Welcome, this is Sam Roach-Gerber and Jules Verne, <laughs> recording from the Fairpoint Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Ben. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're psyched to have you here. Um, I'm going to just start off with the obvious. Where did you get the inspiration for Green Sea? How did it all begin? What uh, it's it's a really a boring story. Like so many startups, I uh, I was an engineer who thought they could do something a little better, and uh, I was working offshore. I grew up on the Outer Banks. I went offshore when I was a young guy and was a diver and salvage diver, and then went into robotics to go deeper. And um, I felt like the way we were doing it was a little tough. There had to be a better way. And uh, Green Sea fell out of that inspiration. I mean, that's a short story through it, but yeah, fell out of that inspiration. That's awesome. I mean, so many people try to start businesses without that problem or pain point. So you're already on the right track. <laughs> right. They're either unemployable and have to start a business, right? They yeah, that's critical right. Juncture, that's so. right. Um, so you're uh, it's probably like three hours, two and a half hours to the nearest ocean from, from where we're at. We are. Um, do your customers actually know that you're located in Richmond, Vermont? You know, funny story there. So we located to, to Vermont to start the company. Uh, my wife and I had, were living in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. I was working for prime contractors in, in the subsea robotic space. We decided to start the company. It was close to us starting a family. So off we came to Vermont, right? Truly, why not? Why not Richmond? And it is the epicenter of subsea technology and marine clearly, business clearly. you know, ever. So off we came to <laughs> Richmond, Vermont. And... As we grew, we, we bought the office, the building that our office is in now. And when I met with the architect the first time, we were going over the requirements for the building. And he said, so what about a receptionary? I like, forget a receptionary. We don't have anything to anybody to receive. <laughs> he said, what about conference rooms? I'm like, we don't need a conference room. There's no conferences happening in here. Oh, my God. So flash forward, you know, however many years now it's been. And we have customers at our facility Several times a month now. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. Almost once a week. Um, we have customer entertaining customers here in, in Richmond. And what's their experience like? I mean, do they, they sort of get involved in the whole Vermont well, scene? I would, and I would love the, to actually be at the airport when they arrive <laughs> most of the time. Um, and really just kind of be on their little dashboard as they do the drive from BTV out to Richmond, thinking the whole way, is this a joke? Is this has got to be wrong. This sort is... of elaborate joke. I see mountains, not yeah, submarine Yeah, that's right. We're, the... we're not not getting it. Um, but it's, it's really positive. It's really positive. And over the years, so we're a long way from a saltwater ocean, but we're very nearby a freshwater ocean. You know, Lake Champlain is just a brilliant test location. 
So we have a boat on Lake Champlain, and over the years we have uh, put in several test fixtures in Lake Champlain and, and generated quite a, a test program and qualification program here on the lake. So from May until the beginning of November every year, a lot of our customer traffic is coming here to work on the lake. Uh, last year we hosted a uh, special forces team of combat divers to do a big uh, training uh, mission on, on the lake, and we did, um, you know, so regularly, you know, a, a few times a month, we have customers That's here pretty to cool. work on the lake. Have you yeah. found Champ yet? I mean, is that is that total BS or? Yeah, I, I don't know. We've seen some things that we can't quite explain, so I'm still holding out hope. No way. Whoa. <laughs> All right. One of my hope. friends from Vermont swears on her life. She and her family saw Champ years ago, oh, yes. and, and she's I, I trust her and believe. Oh her. yeah, we get a few phone calls every year. Uh, <laughs> hey, how about it? So let's just take a step back here. What does Green Sea actually do for those of us out there that that might not have the clearest idea? Well, the the short story, the the short answer is Green Sea is a robotics company and we develop control and navigation software for robots, specifically underwater robots. Um, A better answer is Green Sea is a technology company that develop solutions that help our relationship with robots and machines. So, and what I mean by that is um, we, we develop software that makes machines that we work with underwater and on the ocean smarter. And we develop software that gives us as operators and caretakers and coworkers of these machines a better communication environment to communicate with these machine co-workers of ours. So in a very simple statement, we're a software company that does control and navigation. Um, But really at our roots, we're a a relationship building company. Cool. That's an awesome way to put it. And I was doing my homework. See that, Dave? Nice. Um, And one of the things that I kind of uh, gathered from you um, is that the operator is sort of at the center of everything that you guys do. Can you speak a little bit to the importance of that philosophy? Sure. I, you know, it's interesting. I, it, it, it's truly fascinating, really, if you think about our relationship with machines over the last few decades. You know, we can look at our, our cell phones, the phones that, we, you know, we are so attached to them now. I mean, there is a deep, intimate bond with these things we carry in our pocket now. But look backwards 30 years ago, and nobody had that kind of relationship with this rotary dial thing that hung on the wall in the kitchen. You know? But as phones have become more capable, our relationship with them has changed in, in our day-to-day dealings, our work with them, our relationship, our communication, uh, the, the way they fit into our lives has changed. And that's all because of technology. It's because technology, as, as we've done this march down this, this aggressive technical adoption path, things have gotten smaller, things have gotten better, things have gotten faster, and, and truly, more accurately, they've done so exponentially day to day. So um, as these machines have gotten smarter, we've adapted our, the way we deal with them and our relationship with them. But only in some cases only like in the case of our phone. But in many other cases, um, like in some of the machines that we rely on to do very, very critical things like work, 
Those machines are incredibly capable. They have far more computing power than they've ever had before. I mean, they, a, a tractor driving down a field has more computing power in it now than many of the desktop systems that were sitting on our desk two years ago. I mean, that's just phenomenal to think about. Pretty awesome. It is, but the way we relate to those machines and use them, in many cases, hasn't changed at all. So we're not really getting the potential we could out of these machines if that relationship were different. So we take a, you know, we take a machine, we'll we go, you know, go into our world. We take an underwater robot. So underwater robots are, are awesome. They're, they are just amazing pieces of machinery. The, what, one of the things that's so amazing about them and just so endearing to, about them is these things in the industry as a whole were not built by engineers. I mean, NASA didn't come up with underwater robots. Divers offshore came up with underwater robots to make themselves safer and to go deeper. I mean, it's, it was it's amazingly endearing blue-collar roots to the underwater robotics world, just like many of our robotic applications. Um, so as technology has gotten smaller and faster and better and more capable, we have outfitted these machines with amazing sensors, and perception sensors, stereo cameras, and multi-beam sonars, and, and instrumentation that can track their movements to a millimeter on the, on the seafloor. And in a world underwater where we have no GPS, we can now tell precisely where these vehicles are in real time. But we're completely limiting their overall potential because at the end of the day, their potential is governed by one thing, and that's our operation of them and how we relate to them. So our interest is really in unlocking the potential of these machines because if we can unlock the potential of these machines and we can do more with them, we can have better relationships with them, but most importantly, we can do better work with them. We can be more productive and more efficient with them, but all of it really comes down to this relationship we have with them. You know, are they just a machine that we pull levers and push buttons to make move? Or are they smart mechanical coworkers that we can offer big constructs of, of just, you know, of information to and have them execute on it? And we supervise. So I, it, it's just a, you know, it's an amazing field. It, it's, it's an amazing concept um, to approach a machine like yeah, I was going to say, use the word coworker. I mean, you know, the, the mm -hmm. tug now seems to be, oh gosh, the robots are coming. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to sit at home and collect a government subsidy check because I'm, I'm irrelevant. We versus, call it the myth of autonomy. Right, versus the sort of the, the augmented or the assistive machine. That's right. And I, I think that's what I heard you that's right. say and th this is where you're positioning. And that's where and our company is, is different. And that's how our company very uniquely positions itself. To, so to your question about an operator and why that operator is so important is because our technology is focused on not replacing that operator, but making that operator better at mm -hmm. what they do. So, you know, in parallel of us making machines you know, better, you know, more capable, giving them more potential. In the background, we as technologists have been chasing this myth of autonomy. You know, we're going to replace the humans. You know, we're going to build these super smart, sentient robots and machines that are just going to replace humans. That ain't going to happen. We are 
centuries. You're always. totally frightening decades. our sound engineer. Just look at Taylor's <laughs> face, right? So be careful. We're decades away from that happening. But the big play now is we have an incredible body of technology and knowledge towards autonomy and towards making these vehicles really, really capable. So the play here is how do we work with them? Not how do they work for us. It's but not either or, it's them? and. No, absolutely. We can do better, more meaningful work with a smart vehicle than we could without. Um, could you give our millions of listeners, uh, many of whom must be divers, Sam, I haven't seen yeah. the, the latest profiles, just uh, some examples of how your customers uh, use it. You mentioned a special forces scenario, sure. but you know, are, what are they doing with these things in the water? Yeah, so we focus on applications that are particularly that have particular relationship challenges. So one example is EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, and MCM, Mine Countermeasure. So you've seen the Hurt Locker, and you know we we you see the terrestrial bomb teams where there's a suspected bomb or suspected threat, and they send a robot out to it to disarm the robot and everybody stays safe. The robot, you know, the, the bomb blows up, maybe the robot blows up, but all the people stay safe, job done, everybody goes home, drinks a beer. Well, we want to do the same thing underwater because there are a lot of bad things underwater. And so we want to do the same thing underwater. We don't want to have to send divers out to find bombs and find mines and disarm mines. So we want to develop machines to help this. But underwater, there's some, other, there's some challenges that our terrestrial robotics brethren don't have. But what we want to do is we want to give these bomb techs, these EOD guys, who are out there trying to disarm a threat in a port or harbor uh, scenario, we want to give them some big tools and a smart vehicle to do this by. So we don't want that EOD tech to try to become a robot operator. We want this EOD tech to use a robot like a tool. We want him to be able to tell the robot, hey, robot, we think there's something over here. Go look. Tell us if it's a mine. Tell us if it's a bomb. Robot comes back and says, well, golly, it is. There's a bomb out there. And then the, we want the EOD tech to say, go dispose of it or go tell us what it's made of. And the vehicle goes out and does the job and end the day and everybody goes home safe and happy. But what's most important in that scenario is that EOD tech remained a specialist in bomb disposal and threat mitigation the entire time. He didn't try to become a machine operator, a robot operator. And that's a big, big thing. So we do a lot of work with EOD, a lot of work with MCM. Uh, we do a lot of work with combat divers. You know, so combat divers, these special forces guys, just amazing guys uh, all around the world. I mean, they, they do operations like they get in this nasty water, you know, pitch black, night with you know weapons all over them and they go a really long way underwater and they pop up somewhere they probably shouldn't be and they do something they probably shouldn't be doing and then they come back again well we develop technology so that they can just tell this machine they're riding where to go and what to do and when to come back so that they don't in the middle of everything have to try to navigate and pilot and operate machines underwater and everything else so and uh, we do the same thing for sheriff's departments and police departments and it, really anybody operating with a, a robot in or around the ocean. So it can be search and rescue or for inspection Absolutely. of uh, pipelines or underwater assets. Absolutely. So in the oil and gas world, offshore, um, you know, I mean, the, the, I, I hope I'm not 
shattering anyone's dreams here, but you know, $120 barrel oil isn't coming back. But our infrastructure offshore isn't going anywhere either. So we have to service this infrastructure. We have to continue working offshore. So we can either do it in the old format of, you know, $150,000 a day inspection, maintenance, and repair type cost with a big vessel carrying a big robot and lots of people to operate it, or we can get smart about it and we can carry a little robot that's really smart with just a couple people who know how to communicate to it and do the same amount of work in less time. So... And are you monitoring any any environmental uh, changes or, or parts of the world? That- Our operators do, for sure. We do, um, you know, we do a fair amount with the science community. The science community was a big early adopter of this, this paradigm shift of how we're going to work with machines offshore and underwater. So uh, we have a number of science. Actually, most of the science groups in the world operating big vehicles run our software. So they do. We're software people. We don't do much personally. Um, how's the coral doing? I think the coral's doing coral things. Yeah, coral coraling. things. Yeah, we're not, we're not bleaching out. We're, we're doing all right. Uh, it's coraling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question. Um, so one of the, my favorite things that I came across when I was um, looking at your site was you say – we're smart people who also have a big dose of common sense, and I thought that was so awesome. awesome. Um, tell me a little bit about why that's important to you guys. Is there a lack of common sense in your industry, or is that sort of just a green? No, no, not at all. I, I think more specifically, there may be a lack of perspective. Um, I think it's very easy for roboticists and software guys and girls and engineers to sit behind their computer in their little cluster in these awesome workspaces in Richmond, Vermont, or wherever they are in the world, and come up with cool things, amazing ideas, and implement them, and implement them in software and user interfaces. And just, they just blow the socks off of them and all their friends. But at the end of the day, in our world, it's about the guys offshore working these things. It's about the bomb techs and the combat swimmers and the oil and gas guys. They're the ones that are operating this stuff, and that's what matters most. So it's you have to have perspective. You have to get up every single day and go to work, and you have to think about that person you're writing this software for. Because if our mission is really we're going to develop a better way to relate to machines and robots then we really better do it. We can't just lob some awesome piece of software out there that just kind of sucks. Or, or a Kickstarter product. Yeah, that, I mean, you know... Do you think the barrier is too low nowadays? Is it kind of pissing you off a little bit that everybody's you know, a it, robot I, I think it's or? fun. I think, you know, it's fun. I think it's um, certainly challenging. It keeps... It does provide some important perspective for us. But... Operationally, I, I don't see it impacting operationally that much. However, I think there are what we've noticed over the last few years is that um, the expectations of operators has just done a complete paradigm shift. I mean, how could it not when you know? I mean, my my seven year old has an iPad and does just amazing things with it. And all of these operators that carry these smartphones in their pocket, how could their expectation when they work with a robot be anything less than really, really elevated? So I, keep, I think that keeps our toes to the line for sure. But 
Yeah, perspective. It, it, it's the difference in, it's all about quality. It's the difference in the product. So it's, uh, we are very operator-centric. We're very operator-oriented. Um, we get up every morning and we put on these work shirts so that when I look at somebody I'm working with and when I look at myself in the mirror, I see the guys or girls that I'm developing software for. I don't see some trendy software engineer sitting in it's some the, slick office It's the closest to somewhere. life aquatic, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, team uh, that's it. Shirts. Uh, that, that's awesome. it. That's fantastic. And I, I do think too, Ben. I mean, you're you're quite humble in that. What you solve and what you do with your navigation and control products uh, is non-trivial. I mean, the underlying math and physics, whether you're in the air, space, and water, is quite different. And the fact that your your products and your people and you have have created something that can sit on the surface, go below, have relational position to one mm-hmm. another. Uh, fixed assets, other floating assets, that navigational drift solution you have is, is just awesome. Um, to yeah. to, to a, someone who's not very smart like me, it's, it's well, truly thanks. magnificent. It is, uh, we have a, a very good platform, and it's, uh, we have, I would say, close to 800 systems in the field now, and it's very widely adopted through commercial and military users, and it's doing really well. We That's great. And, and not everybody problems. knows it just happened overnight. Um, just it, truly <laughs> overnight. You know, when we started back in February, I never would have dreamt that in just a few months. All right, let's, let's ask about the business side of things here, too, because your, your story's uh, wonderful. And um, did you have any business mentors along the way that helped you as, a, uh, I guess, your first-time founder, CEO, that just maybe describe who you turned to and what that relationship was like? Because it is pretty important. It is. Um, so, you know, I'll take a step back and, and describe a little bit about the history of the, the, the company so our, our millions of audience understands a little bit about where we're coming from. The, uh, w- our company is 11 years old. We still very much have a, a startup mentality, and in many ways we are a startup. Um, we started 11 years ago in 2006. Now, when we started, we were very pre-market, there, the, our market, our, our the marine industry, the subsea robotics industry, they were not asking for what we were out to develop. Um, but it didn't take a genius to see that the the tides had no pun intended, the tides <laughs> had to turn. You know, honestly. So we were very much pre-market when we started, and we started developing this technology. And we're in a small industry. We don't have the luxury of rolling out a phone or a a piece of consumer electronics, having a few million early adopters to tell us what breaks, and oh, by the way, it catches on fire, and then we roll out version two in a couple months. 45 days later. That's right. All sins are forgiven. You know, we we don't have that option, you know. So we have one chance. And so... This is our 11th year. For the first eight or nine years that we were in business, we just developed technology. And we, we were very much just a technology development house. We, I managed the business right on the line. I, I put together a technical roadmap when we started the company. And I managed the company just steadfastly to that technical roadmap. And 
we funded it ourselves. We funded it on the backs of, of revenue. So we would find programs that needed this type of technology. We'd fund it. Use different federal grants. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of programs. work with defense work yeah. at the time. Um, and a couple of years ago, we started, uh, we'd, I felt like we had reached that maturity level we were, we were really looking for. We had had... A couple years ago, we had several hundred systems in the field across all aspects in the market. It was, things were going really well. Technology was mature. I was comfortable with it. So we began the evolution towards a product-based company. We productized this core technology. We made deep relationships with manufacturers. It also helped that that tide we'd been waiting to change was changing, and operators and the industry woke up one day, no longer with the requirement that their vehicles were smarter and better, but just with the expectation their vehicles were smarter and better. Manufacturers are caught on the back of their heels. They had one place to come to. So we began selling product. So to answer your question, David, yeah, I've had a number of mentors over the years, and I've turned to them for different things through the the evolution of the company. So in our early days, my mentors were technologists. They were problem solvers. They were bootstrappers. They were guys who could relate to spending five or six years stuck in the attic writing software with a bunch of, you know, I want to party with them. Yeah. A bunch of other misanthropic <laughs> software developers, you know? I mean, it, so during those years, I, I had a certain, you know, I, I had a couple mentors. As we began the shift in the company, the, the pivot, uh, our first moonshot. As we began our first moonshot, I, I had another couple mentors and people I turned to. And now as we're preparing our second moonshot, I have another set of mentors. And, um, and my evolution as, as, a, you know, as an entrepreneur and a CEO and a, and a technologist uh, you know, has, has changed significantly over the past 11 years. So I, I need different people in my life. I need different people to talk to about you know, my personal evolution. And uh, so I've turned to a number of mentors great, for great. sure. And how, uh, let's talk about your team today. How many folks are working for you? Where have you found them? How do you grow them? We're probably around, I think we just hired our 24th, 25th. We will be at least 30 by the end of the year. Shut up. That's yeah. awesome. We'll be at I least 30 by I, the end I of the year. I was last visiting with you. It was probably a, a baker's dozen maybe. Yeah, so. yeah. we Great. have um, our growth plan for the next few years. is uh, in Our growth plan into 2019 is bringing on about 16 new hires. Great. Great. So across spectrum, that really represents the pivot towards a, a more commercial uh, company so software Hello, are those roles posted on your website now they sure are all right it's sure at green are. The first C six are greenseainc.com greenseainc.com that's right um and you use a bunch of interns right don't you uh, are you engaged in the colleges and universities we, we much? do yep. yeah we we sure do interns of all shapes and sizes and ages yeah it's uh it, right now we have a we have a couple high school kids that are job shadowing at the office um that, that's kind of more uh, out of our STEM outreach efforts. It's awesome. And uh, we always have a couple college kids that are interning. And um, we have relationships with colleges locally as well as uh, colleges elsewhere. Great, great. So important. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit 
more about sort of lessons learned around financing your company. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I think I heard you mention that you know you and your wife sort of mm-hmm. started it. Um, there were some grants, and then you know you you evaluated pros and cons of different sorts of investors too over the years. And 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 this is this is often when people break down. So Sam, the tissue box is up on the shelf there, <laughs> just within reach bins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I think the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make w- with financing is believing that there is a single solution for every company out there, um, or even that there are three or four standard solutions they can pick from for financing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just as individual as the entrepreneurs are and the business cases and the projections are and the strategies and the dreams, so too are the financing options. And it's really, really important that entrepreneurs, I think, find the option that is right for them. And they talk to people they trust and they evaluate what all of the options mean. And and then go home and sit down with the person you love who is in this thing with you and figure out what your heart's really telling you. And then that's the right decision. It's not textbook, you know. I um, Is it about evenly weighted between, say, the, the terms of the investment with the sort of people behind the investment? I mean, is, is there alignment, you know, likability? Because, you know, there's going to so be fun my, times and bad times, too. There, there is. So my feeling, and... and my case, you know, I um, I had a real roadmap, a vision for the company. I was not creating a company to turn and burn and flip in a few years. Uh, that that was not my motive at all. Uh, so, I also knew that I was very strong in some things and not really strong in other things. So, when I went out considering financing, I I had a couple requirements. One is there needed to be money, but two, there needed to be smart, invested money behind it. Because I could get money from anywhere. I could even swallow a lot of different terms. But I really wanted somebody to complement what I didn't have to run the business from a vested perspective. Hey, you've got skin in this thing now, pal. Come on, let's make some good decisions. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think of it as as part of building the team, but it really mm. is. It's absolutely fundamental. Yeah. Absolutely fundamental. Yeah, it, it's going to be one of my regrets in life that we didn't end up uh, getting, <laughs> a, getting to a comfort spot to uh, put some money into your company back when you needed it really badly. Uh, Actually, the tissues are for me, yeah. Because, well, you know why? I, I just fascinated with the depths of the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Remember those? Uh, was it Suntos? You know, those watches that sure. told you how high you went. Uh-huh. I, my first reaction is, how deep can I go? I, yeah, I'm like, give me a cave or a tank, and we'll go, we'll go try it out. So. A little spelunking. Well, I am a certified diver. Are you? Oh, we should take you out sometime. It has long expired. (gasps) On the lake here. I learned on the lake. Oh, we should take you out sometime. We're diving uh, tomorrow. You want to go out? Take him out. Uh, We're going to edit this section out. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'll be there. I'll meet you in the dock. Perfect. Um, All right, Sam, you want to ask the the real question that we have here around uh, the difference between a drone, ROV, 
Yeah, and and the AUV, the acronyms alone. Oh, you want some acronyms? We want to go. You want some acronyms? You want some acronyms? I almost made like a cheat sheet, just that I didn't end up doing it, but I. I'm just being candid here because, you know, I, I think the listeners would like to know as well, Well, it right? depends on whether you're talking about an ROV, an AUV, a UUV, a UAV, or an AUV. That's what I was going to say. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I, I so just, you got to be more specific. It's all ball what, bearings. What are we talking about? It's all ball <laughs> bearings. So. Well, it's maybe the drone, right? That That mm-hmm. is just everybody sort of knows what a drone is yep. now. We've all seen the, the, the military uses mm-hmm. remote operators. I mean... Is is that what the ROVs are in the yeah the world? yeah kind of so drones have a, a really cool mystique and image that they're autonomous and they're flying around and they're just you know these swarming you know sentient things they're not they're glorified robotic remote control thingies you know but short life short duration short life yeah. short duration yeah. Um, they, short operator attention spans, the, the whole nine yards. Um, they do, some of the more advanced ones absolutely do have some pretty impressive levels of supervised autonomy and some really cool control algorithms going on in there. Camera, con- uh, camera control and stabilization and feature-based positioning and feature lock. And, you know, it's really cool stuff. But at the end of the day, they're a brilliant example of just supervised autonomy. You've got a supervisor that's communicating over a low bandwidth communications link and offering, you know, kind of high-level instructions. And and do you see the consumer uh, underwater vehicle element taking off? I've seen some some toys. Yeah, you know, I think that we will... Yeah, the, the toy world for sure, the yachty world. I don't know if we'll ever go... We'll never walk down the aisles of Best Buy and see, you know, underwater drones like we see aerial drones. I really don't think so. There are a bunch of limiting factors. You know, 99.9% of the water that consumers can access has no visibility. So what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Have fun. Yeah. You ever watch a submarine race? That'd be kind of what it'd be like. I mean, it'd be awful. <laughs> Um, we it's are, like diving on Lake Champlain, though. It's it, it, tell amazing. me about it. It's a great yeah. place to learn ah, because you really it. can't see. Oh, boy, tell me about it. But I think I'm too claustrophobic to dive. Oh, you're uh, it's, it's awesome. It, it, uh, it blows it's the senses serene. when you dive. Yeah. And I'll never forget my first experience diving um, in Belize and, mm. and on the outside of the reef. And, my God, it was a whole world oh. opened up. Yeah, it, it's and then I saw the big fish and got the hell out of there. So. <laughs> it's intoxicating, especially after Lake Champlain. Yeah, but not to knock it, Lake Champlain is nice to dive. In. After you said the word chilly. diving, and Ben just cheesing now, I wish we could see the see the smile on this guy's <laughs> face. We'll pick it up is how the, I got into this mess. To energy. be honest with you, God, it is my my. Yeah. Um, what's the deepest you have dived? Uh, personally, only maybe 160, 70 feet or so. Yeah, so. well, it's still pretty legit. I'm. I'm no rocket scientist. Yeah, I, I've never been real into the, the tech thing. I was into shipwrecks for a while, but never really into seeing what dangers I could avoid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you found Amelia Earhart yet? Numerous times. she came up recently in some photo that's been disproven. So yeah, numerous times. Yeah, they've been looking for her down in, you know, around Howland Island in the South Pacific. But most people don't realize she's really crashed on Juniper Island. Juniper just right, off, uh, right <laughs> out here off the Burlington uh, Breakwater. We love starting falsehoods here. 
Uh, fake news. That's it's, what, that's it what seems I'm, to be the, the order of the day, right? How that's what I bring to this podcast today. Amelia Earhart's on Juniper Island. If I saw someone her Googles that, like, oh man. Oh, this will live. Mission accomplished. This will live. Mission accomplished. Yeah. yeah. So, Ben, have any Vermont specific investors or economic development resources been particularly helpful to you guys? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. Let's bring it back. Yeah, no, yeah, for, for sure. For sure. Um, actually, you know, I, I years ago when I when we first started the the pivot from a technology R and D company towards productizing our core technology, the first folks I called I, I called David at Visa, and um, uh, we never did a deal and we never went forward. But he offered me a really valuable piece of advice. He said, "Hey, look, you shouldn't discount social media, and it's really important because up until that time, I." I couldn't care less about it. That was pretty important. Um, we have Vita has been instrumental to our company. Um, uh, I just I can't say enough good things about Vita. Uh, yeah, Tom Porter and and his team at Vita have have helped us numerous times, from offering just a shoulder to cry on to a sanity check to some real meaningful funding to, to help us buy our first building. Awesome. They're, um, we're in the process of trying to buy another building now with them um, as we expand. Uh, Vita has just been tremendous. Yeah. have been really, yeah. really yeah. happy. Vermont Economic Development Authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really great to see that that used. Um, what, uh, what in Vermont... Um, would make starting a tech company a, a heck of a lot easier or quicken the process or less painful? I mean, are there two or three things that you say, oh, gosh, I wish I could have pulled from that? Or Well, I tell you, I sure would like to start a Vermont, I sure would like to start a tech company in Vermont today versus 11 years ago. <laughs> oh. um, so we've come up ways, have we? I feel so, for sure. I, uh, you know, 11 years ago, now granted, I wasn't from the area. I didn't really know the area and what was going on. But, you know, I've, I've used the analogy before, and it's accurate. I felt like I was opening a snow, snow cone shop in the desert. I mean, it was like, what in the world are we doing out here? <laughs> uh, Bolton Valley doesn't have yeah, a, like, a, a, hey, a submariner's yeah, uh, we're weekly build a robot. We're going to build a robot company. And it's, um, but... Over the last few years, there's just been, I mean, everything from the from the maker community right on through the, the tech community and the entrepreneurial community and the, the various technology alliances, it's, it's a different landscape for sure. My opinion now is the next thing we need to do is stop thinking it's novel that we have a tech company in Vermont. Because this is a tech place. There's a right. lot of people doing tech here. And so there's nothing novel about it. And we just need to get on with it and embrace the fact that this is a great place to live. It's an awesome place to have a company. And there are a lot of really smart people around here. It's fertile soil for tech. And the biggest thing that we need to do now for all of those other entrepreneurs out there thinking of starting a tech company is stop thinking we've done something novel. This is the landscape. We're a tech community. 
And then, and then, what will we think about then? Is it more just making sure we're we're feeding it uh, appropriately, we gotta, or not doing right. willy nilly policy right. decisions, or no, not we need investing to, in STEM? That's right. We need to focus real hard on a couple of things. We need to focus on STEM as a community, as a tech community. We need to focus on STEM. It's our it. Not not to be too grandiose about it, but it's our responsibility. It's our duty. I mean, how can us as entrepreneurs and business owners that are growing businesses and we all get together and the only thing we bitch about all through dinner is, oh my God, we can't find people, we're resource strapped and everything else. And then I turn and look at all the other CEOs at the table and I said, how much are you guys investing in STEM each year? And I said, well, you know, we, we did a talk in a middle school last, you know, two Octobers ago. It's like, where's it coming from, guys? You know, you, you, want, you want the next generation. You want recruitment. Where's it coming from? You almost have to think of it as a supply chain issue. Without a doubt. You know what I mean, right? You yeah. Want different sources. You want to plan ahead. Put the- For sure. I mean, we're software companies. We're robotics companies. We're doing some really big, creative, technical things. Are we really, do we really have the expectation that our public school system is preparing the next roboticist to come out of Chittenden County? There's no way. Yeah. Our responsibility is to get into schools so that kids know these jobs even exist. You know, we, we need to light those fires. We need to show them, hey, look, did you know there's game development? You know these video games you play? They're people that write these things. This is what the job looks like. You know, um... You know, you may think these websites that you go to are just kind of mundane, but look what's behind them. Look at the vast technology behind them. And robots. Did you, what about robots? Well, we need to light those fires. So as a tech community, we have a big responsibility to go out there and, and do that and show people what's a, a, a possible. And I've, been, I've been really surprised to see... Uh like the robotics meetup group that formed. I mean, Jeff Springer up at our mm-hmm. DM office and probably you. So let's, let's see if we can have a meetup. Mm-hmm. Had like, went from like 35 people to 60 to 100 to 300. To, yeah, probably, it's I don't know ravenous. What the, it's ravenous. We do a couple of robotics camps a year. We sponsor a couple of robotics camps a year. And the, the kids are just coming. I mean, they love it. Even the parent, everybody, they love it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant medium. I mean, I, I'm, I'm biased. But robotics is a brilliant medium to, to talk about STEM. Because you've got everything. You have mechanical engineer, you have wrench turning, you have grease monkeys, you have software and coding and electronics and batteries and power supplies and, and vision systems. You've got everything. Well, and you also have that, that whole interaction and interoperability with humans. So, I mean, you, you, know, you need a good anthropologist and a That's psychologist right. to figure yeah. out how My wife things... is a PhD psychologist and she works at Greensea. Yeah, wow. it takes all, we, we have to have all kinds when we start working with robotics and doing robotics. So the other thing, you know, as a tech community, um, what's next for us is we do need to focus on recruitment. We need to, so we need to figure out collectively how to get people to come to Vermont for tech jobs. We, we've built it. We've planted it. This is fertile soil. We have it going on. We've got a lot of really cool stuff happening here. But when people outside Vermont look into Vermont, they need to see tech, and they need to see jobs, and they need to see a thriving community that we all see internally. And we need to work with the state to, to transmit that vision and that the view that we see every day from here inside this office 
we need to be able to transmit that outside of Vermont. And I think that's the, you know, that's what our, our community is going to need for our next moonshot. Well, I think, Sam, maybe Ben just suggested that VSET open up its uh, ocean port facility hmm. maybe next year. That's exactly uh, what I was suggesting. I'd be happy to We're have looking that for a, a job accepted. A, a, a good uh, left-hand break. Uh, I don't know how deep the port needs to be. Yeah, but maybe you know, San Diego, drop. the Outer Banks of North Carolina, something like that. Well, be awesome for Visa, we need to keep it on the East Coast. Yeah, so the Outer Banks of we'll North work. Carolina. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on yeah, that. Yeah, I think just one of my, I don't know, I was thinking about what you were saying about the, um, you know, getting getting people here to take these jobs. And I think one of my biggest frustrations that I've come across is, you know, a lot of these companies say, oh, we really need people. We really can't find anyone but they're not willing to train anyone. Yeah, that's right. And that's a huge problem. You know, like people are educated. They're coming here they're or they're already here. They want these jobs. They're hardworking. They're smart. You need to take the time to train them in order for them to for succeed sure. in these jobs. And some companies just aren't willing to do that. That's right. And, you need, and we need to engage with those that are training. So we need to engage with the colleges and the universities locally. We need to engage with... VCT, and we need to engage with UVM and St. Mike's and Champlain, and we need to engage as a business community and say, hey, this is what we're looking for. Right. This I mean, is what we quick need. We have another uh, portfolio company, uh, Next Capital, that mm-hmm. has been wanting to grow their office in Burlington significantly, but they couldn't get enough of the CS graduates that would pass their test. Mm-hmm. And it was frustrating. Yeah. And I'm clamoring, come on. And they're going, you know, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the colleges with the deans and the mm-hmm. professors and say, this is a contemporary job mm-hmm. test. Just use it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's starting to happen. And I think that sort of engagement and involvement, you grow your own, you, you sort of sure is. sort of work on the, the supply chain side. Mm-hmm. So um, that's great. And it just occurred to me, you know, an 11-year-old company, you're not even a teenager. I know. Right? You God, know what I mean? I you're you're like sort of uh, that, awkward, that awkward middle age of a company. Yeah, I, I think... Some days I don't feel like that. The awkward part, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the awkward old man in the room. Perfect. <laughs> Drunk uncle Perfect. in the room. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, Sam. We hitting him with the last let's, question? Let's hit it. Awesome. Ben, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about Vermont? One thing. There's no wrong answers. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. We've had In and Out Burger. We've had uh, Red Pandas in the Woods. We've had uh, more diversity, healthcare. Direct flights out of BTV. Boom. More direct flights out of BTV because, God dang it, as hard as I've tried, I have not been able to get any customers in Newark, New Jersey, or Chicago, Illinois. So, yeah, some direct flights out of BTV. That'd be amazing. To those two airports? Not to those two airports. Give us some airports because. Again, this is nationally syndicated, so there could be an airport official somewhere. Get us to the West Coast. West Come Coast. on, let's push a little bit harder. Salt Lake let's Direct. Get, uh, San Francisco. Let's get us to the Bay Area. BTV to the Bay Area. That works for let's me. Let's do it. Well, San Diego, that would make our VSET office a little bit more practical. And San Diego. Long Beach, we can get to Long Beach on JetBlue. We have many customers in San Diego. We have many customers in San Francisco, but we want to... Link a tech hub here. Mm-hmm. 
nonstop right. to. That's a good non, one. Sounds like it would be selfless for us to open a San Diego branch. So. BTV to SFO. All right, we'll work on it. We'll do it again. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and even the accidental entrepreneur. Series made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V C E T. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to work.